Bibles, let's go back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is part two of a two-part series we started last week. Next week we'll be diving into the book of 2 Samuel. And tonight we'll be looking at an overview of that book, introducing it uh, to the congregation, talking about how to better understand and read Old Testament narratives. So that will be a helpful time, I hope. Um, Come and join us tonight as we consider Old Testament narrative. My children have lately gotten more and more into drawing as a hobby. And one of the primary things they're doing is finding a picture of something that they like, something that attracts their attention, and then uh, they find that on the computer, and then they trace over the pattern. And they begin to copy the rest of it and then color it in. In our passage this morning, Paul's presenting to the Ephesian elders, to church leaders today, and to all of God's people, a godly pattern to trace or to imitate. Last week, we talked about the importance of setting a godly example, how that's the responsibility of every believer. This isn't just for church leaders. God intends to use godly examples in our lives for our own growth in godliness. So this morning we'll continue to consider the pattern that Paul sets for these men as they seek to honor the Lord in their service in the church. What we'll see again is that God provides faithful, spiritually mature men to lead and serve his people with the word and by their example. Let's look at Acts 20. We'll read verses 17 through 38 again. And this is God's word to us, his people. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears And with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the spirit not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. That imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value. Nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able or powerful to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's ask for his help as we consider his word together. Father, we come before you expressing our dependence on your spirit to open our eyes to behold the truths in this word. Lord, we know that you have written this for a people long ago and yet it was written for our instruction. It is profitable for us. So may we know how to apply it to our lives. May we grow as we see a godly example. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we'll focus on three things, the character, the call, and the care of faithful elders. Now, there may be a a temptation to see and hear this passage and think that because Paul is is addressing a specific or particular group of people, the elders, that there's very little value in this text for you. Paul's providing an example of spiritual maturity, though, for every single believer. So consider each of the character qualities that he presents or that he says he's modeling. And ask, how can I grow in these traits as well? How are these so characteristic of Paul's life? Examine what Paul says about the call of elders. And remember that we're all called to be an example to someone in our lives. And finally, consider how he models care for God's people in the church and ask how you might better serve others in our church family in similar ways. So first, the character of a faithful elder. As Paul sets before these men an example of his life, he's giving them a way in which they should be living. His life and ministry is a pattern to follow, to emulate, to imitate. So what should we be looking for in a man's character? What should an elder look like? We'll go through several things and we'll move quickly through them. First, visible holiness. In verse 18, Paul says to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Paul's saying that his life has been on display for the entire church to see. They know what his character was like. They'd observed it up close. Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 tells us that an elder should be blameless, above reproach. And Paul's saying, my life can be observed. You can see whether or not that's true. And the conclusion is that there's nothing here that would hinder him from a faithful ministry. There is observable spiritual maturity. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that a pastor or elder or overseer must be perfect. If that were the case, there would be no elders in our churches, would there? No man is perfect. 
But it does mean that upon examination, this man is faithful, he's godly, he's growing. He's here with God's people whenever he can be, investing in them, loving them. Second, we see humility. Paul says in verse 19, he served the Lord with all humility. He's telling us that an elder is not in it for himself. For the pats on the back, for the recognition or influence that he might gain. Paul writes instead in 1 Corinthians 4.12, When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. You see, in ministry, a man's humility will regularly be tested. If you get involved in ministering to other people, this kind of thing is going to be tested again and again. Think of how in the Middle Ages, this is what rightly angered and frustrated Martin Luther about the Catholic Church. He goes and makes this trek as a priest to visit Rome and see the center of his religion. And he's appalled at the opulence, the wealth, the waste. The priests and the popes lorded their authority over the people. They grew rich off this man-made system. They didn't serve the people, they oppressed them. This isn't the humble service modeled by the true shepherd of the sheep. A man who believes that the role of a shepherd will elevate him does not understand this biblical role. He's to enter into it with great humility and sobriety. Third, courage. A minister of the gospel will be tempted at times to give in to the fear of man. We're all naturally prone to want people to think well of us. But an elder must have courage as Paul Paul models it here. If he's faithfully teaching the word and sharing the gospel as Paul does, he will face opposition. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. He served the Lord with all humility and with trials. That happened to me through the plot of the Jews. We know from our study in Acts that this happened in city after city after city. In verses 22 and 23, he tells these men that he knows more hardship will come for him. His life may even be forfeit. Jail time, he says, is certain. And yet he can say in verse 20, you know how I did not shrink or retreat or withdraw from declaring to you anything that was profitable. My safety was not of utmost importance. Risk is godly in the ministry. He says in teaching you in public from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The message must go forward. Paul repeats this statement again down in verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you. A pastor must hold deep convictions that he is to give the word, whether in season or out of it, whether convenient or inconvenient, whether people want to hear it or not. He must have convictions that he will finally answer to God and to God alone for his ministry and teaching. A minister of God's word is simply a mouthpiece, a messenger for the king. He doesn't get to shape the message to what he hopes his audience will want to hear. 
It's easy to pull your punches and not say something to someone who is struggling or thinking wrongly. To say something that they need to hear for fear of starting a conflict. We each need to grow in our courage to speak the truth to one another. To speak it lovingly, even when it may be difficult for someone else to hear. We have to be focused on speaking it for their good, certainly. We're to be bold in our witness to our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors. We need this kind of gospel courage. Fourth, commitment. Look down at verse 24. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus. Do you see how Paul is modeling single-minded, sacrificial? He's not risk-averse. Safety is not his first priority. This is single-minded commitment and focus on the task that Jesus has given to him. It's his priority. It's his life. It's his passion. An elder must love the ministry of the church. He must be devoted to it, and that should be readily apparent. God's people and the work of the ministry cannot be secondary to him. He should be passionate about helping others walk with Christ and be prepared to see him in glory one day, eagerly giving time and energy to God's people. Our Savior and Paul model for us men who are willing to lay down their entire lives in the service of God's mission and people. How is Paul so willing to give up so much? Because he's consumed with Christ. What Christ has done for him. That's what an elder should be like. To what are you devoting your life? Are you laying up treasure in heaven? Are you fixated on the here and now? What you can gain now? Are you worshiping idols of success, possessions, a bank account? Are you investing your time, your energy, your gifts in those who alone will go with you into the next life? Next, diligence. Paul tells the elders in verse 28, pay attention first to themselves and then to all the flock and to keep alert. A pastor must be careful to pay attention to potential dangers. He's to be diligent to be doing his job. He's a watchman. He doesn't take a break. He's to be watching and growing in his own walk first. His progress is to be apparent to all. If he's not growing himself, then how can he help God's people grow? So Paul says, pay attention first to yourselves. Spiritual maturity is meant to be infectious. So God's leaders must be godly and faithful and growing. And their lives are, is meant to infect the whole body. Men, is your life and testimony and God, growth in godliness worth imitating? Do your friends and co-workers and especially your family see your zeal and eagerness to grow in the things of the Lord? Is your spiritual walk infectious? Do you ever spend time in the word and in prayer with your family 
Or would it seem strange and unusual if you suggested taking some time to do so? Church family, this kind of life examination is meant for each of us, no matter what position we may or may not hold in our church. Are you growing toward this kind of maturity? Are you helping others walk with Christ? Or is your life very self-focused, still very immature? Next, we see that Paul is generous. Notice this especially in verses 33 to 35. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You know that these hands ministered to my necessities. Paul's saying, I worked and provided for myself and gave myself to ministry. And to those who were with me, my hands ministered to others. It wasn't just for gaining for myself. In verse 35, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul demonstrates he's not in ministry for the money. And of the false teachers, Paul tells Timothy and Titus, that's all they're in it for. Preeminence, position, influence, financial gain. You know, we have examples even in our own city that good money can be made off the backs of professing followers of Christ. And yet Paul says, I modeled that this is not the way that I lived and served God's people. An overseer is instead to be a conduit of God's kindness and favor to his people. He's eager to share. He's eager to give away himself, his time, his energy, his, his goods. He's to be hospitable and gracious with the temporal possessions with which God has blessed him. Lastly, he's to be compassionate. Paul says in verse 19 that he served the Lord with tears. Go down to verse 31. He says, he, warn, he warns them, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Finally, in verses 36 and 37, Luke records, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping. Now, why so many references to tears? A godly man is not afraid to pour his heart out before God's people. He's so invested, it's all of him, including his emotions. He's continually moved by the work of God. And think of who this is. This is Paul, a rugged, seasoned, wise, and very intelligent man. And yet he is regularly shedding tears in ministry. It demonstrates his great heart for the work to which God has called him. Last night at dinner, we were talking about this for just a few moments, discussing the things that might cause us to weep or shed tears. The glad investment in communicating the truth of God's word and the deep and meaningful discipling relationships established over time were the occasions that came to our minds. Are you so invested in others? in the beauty of the truths of the gospel that it at times bring you to tears? Men, do you ever weep over the truth? Do you ever weep over the sins of other brothers and sisters in prayer? Or even as you appeal to them to turn back to God? Can your passion and compassion be seen even 
in your emotions. It's good sometimes for us when men are praying or reading scripture or speaking to us of the things of God that they're moved even to tears. You see the love that is modeled here between these men? They've devoted their lives together to doing the work of God. Their hearts are knit together. They've given their lives to the cause of Christ and the emotions run deep between them. Secondly, we see the calling of a faithful elder. Look back now at verse 28. Paul exhorts these men by a command, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now we need to understand this verse carefully when it comes to the calling of elders. We should take note that these men are already functioning in their church as shepherds of the Ephesian flock. They're pastoring this body. They've been doing so for over a year and a half. It seems that Paul's been separated, moved on to planting other churches. So they're already serving. And verse 28 gives us the encouragement that the triune God is providing shepherds for his sheep. Paul gives this reminder. It's a reminder that the Holy Spirit of God provides elders to be both an encouragement and a sobering reminder. When a pastor or overseer is struggling in his work, it's important to remember that God has called and equipped him to serve God's people. This provides to him great encouragement. This is something that has stood out to me as I think about recognizing, making sure I'm recognizing how to see signs of God's leading and say this is the will of God. There will be a time in a man's ministry where he needs to go back and recognize this was God's plan, not my own. Think of Jesus even in the garden. As he's knowing what's coming, he says, not my will, but yours done. Yours be done. Even Jesus needs to be reminded of God's plan and will for him. At times, this is essential for a pastor to remember. It's not only an encouragement, but when he is discouraged or facing opposition, he must also remember this was not ultimately his design or plan for his life. He doesn't get to decide to cut and run. Now, while verse 28 provides elders and congregations with encouragement and a sobering reminder that the Spirit provides and makes elders overseers, it does not prescribe for us how we find future elders. There are other key verses to consider to help us determine if a man is called to be an elder or pastor or overseer. And wisdom would tell us that there are at least three consciences that we need to keep in mind that need to be working together, examining the qualifications and duties of an overseer before that man is given the role and responsibility of pastor. Three consciences, the potential elder, the current elders, and the congregation. First, the potential elder needs to consider whether or not he recognizes God's gifting in his life. Does he desire this work and does he believe he's gifted for the work? 1 Timothy 3.1 says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's good. That's the starting point. Men should aspire to these roles. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 2-3. It's a command. To the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, 
You shouldn't do this because somebody else said you should. You shouldn't do this because you feel like you have to. He says, but willingly, as God would have you. Remember who you're serving, he's saying. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, willingly, happily even. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. There's that modeling again. Personal ambition for this role demands care and careful consideration. As Peter demonstrates, notice in that text, there will be the temptation for what he says is shameful gain. I don't believe this only means money. Men by nature are tempted to want influence and affirmation and a position to bolster a sense of self-worth. That's why Peter in this verse commands elders to shepherd, to sacrifice, to care for God's people. Leading them as an example, not domineering. It's not about their authority. One author states, a spirit-given desire for pastoral eldership will naturally demonstrate itself in action. It cannot be held in. The person with a spirit-created motivation for the work of eldership will devote much time and thought and energy to caring for God's people and studying the scriptures. There is no such thing as a spirit-given desire for pastoral service without the corresponding evidence of sacrificial loving service and love for God's word. Before a man is appointed to eldership, he is already proving himself by leading and teaching and bearing responsibility in the church. A shepherd is shepherding whether he's recognized in an office or not. If a man has such a desire, his first question to the current elders shouldn't be, why am I not being given a position? Rather, it should be, where can I get more involved? How can I help serve God's people? Where do you see my need to keep growing? Secondly, is he gifted to teach the word of God in a way that God's people recognize to be helpful. So we're talking through the three consciences. First, in his conscience, is he ready to move forward? Second, are God's people ready for him to move forward? God's people are to help him affirm this gifting. They must recognize it as well and be able to put their trust and confidence in his ability to handle the word among them. Now, how do we know that the body is supposed to be involved in evaluating a man's giftedness and his qualifications? Well, we know because God's word clearly reveals to all of God's people what he expects from his leader, what he expects from his leaders, specifically in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Those are very clear passages for all of God's people to be using to evaluate their leaders. All three groups are to work together in affirming this calling. I remember a time in my life considering what God wanted me to do and doing some study on how to know the will of God. And I came across some writings and some teachings by John MacArthur. I can still remember the advice that he gave. He starts very ordinarily, very simply. He says, first practice daily what you know to be God's will. He's saying grow deeper and deeper into the habits of grace. Be faithful in the ordinary disciplines of the Christian life. And then get busy serving God in the church wherever you can. It doesn't matter where it is. 
In time, God's people will help tell you what your gifts are. They will recognize and affirm how God has equipped you to serve and to serve him most effectively. Let that speak louder to you than what you may initially think you should be doing. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 3.2 that he must be able to teach. He tells Timothy further in 2 Timothy 2.24 and following, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is parallel with what we've read in Titus 1.9. He's to hold firm to the trustworthy message so that he can positively encourage and teach others by sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So what does it mean that an elder must be able or apt to teach? Author Ben Merkel answers, elders must be able to communicate God's word in a way that is accurate and understandable. He cannot merely have a cursory knowledge of the Bible. He must be immersed, immersed in the teachings of Scripture so that he can both exhort in sound doctrine and rebuke those who reject it. Elders are going to be men who are already teaching the Word of God in some way. It may be a very small way. It may be one-on-one. And the body is profiting by that teaching. This doesn't mean that they're all going to be equally comfortable in the pulpit. But as their skills in handling the word grows, the body is going to be built up. If this is a spirit-given gift, God will use this. Be looking then for men who are teaching the word and God's people are growing as a result. Being apt to teach may mean being skillful in handling the word in different ways and places, in counseling situations, in small group teaching, in Sunday school, or in preaching. One author states, it would seem odd for Paul to require that all elders be able to teach if some of them are not involved in any type of teaching ministry. Wouldn't that be odd? And yet this doesn't automatically mean that everyone or anyone who's ever taught Sunday school should be an elder. Who is the most, who's doing this most faithfully over time for the benefit of God's people? Pastor and author Alex Strauch explains being able to teach this way. It doesn't matter how successful a man is in his business, how eloquent he speaks. It's not the most effective speaker, the best speaker, or how intelligent he is. These natural abilities are not the primary points of qualification. If he isn't firmly committed to historic apostolic doctrine and able to instruct in biblical doctrine he does not qualify to be a biblical elder he continues to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it requires a prospective elder has applied himself for some years to the reading and studying of scripture that he can reason intelligently and logically discuss biblical issues that he's formulated doctrinal beliefs for himself that he has the verbal ability and willingness to teach others. Finally, the third conscience, the current elders, are to take seriously the responsibility for the men that they help put into places of leadership. Paul commands Timothy to find faithful men who can teach others also. This is why we want to give the men in our church opportunities to be trained and grow and practice and use these skills in teaching. 
One author writes of current elders' role in seeking to find future leaders. Perpetuation of eldership is implied in the elders' role as congregational shepherds, stewards, and overseers. The key to reproducing leadership is to clearly plan for it. Church leaders need to produce leaders who will reproduce leaders precisely as it is done in the family through experience and instruction and modeling. Now, I want you to pause just for a moment. We've been walking through these three consciences. Pause for just a moment and consider the great weight of responsibility that this task is in the church. In my mind, this is the second most important thing that your pastors do. After teaching the word of God carefully, the second thing is finding faithful men who can teach. The last thing we want to do is to appoint a man for a role for which he's not gifted or prepared. Consider the potential damage to all involved if we appoint a man who does not truly meet the biblical qualifications. Think of the danger we place him into If he's asked to give answers to questions, he's never even considered. He doesn't have the skill to handle the word to answer those questions. That's not fair to him or the congregation. And the only specific command Paul gave to Timothy in regard to appointing more elders is this in 1 Timothy 5. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And notice this connecting word, nor take part in the sins of others. At least to some degree, this phrase means that if a church is hasty in appointing unqualified men into leadership, they are potentially taking part in that man's sins. We must move slowly then in this regard, carefully, carefully understanding these texts and the kind of character and gifting the word requires of each individual man. This takes time and patience, and wisdom. This means we must all together recognize and agree that a man is gifted for this role and spiritually qualified. This is exciting and encouraging for us to see happening in our church family. Don't ever think that because you do not have a recognized office or role in the church that you're somehow limited in service to your God. Get busy investing in others in the body. Don't worry about what position you have. Let God figure that out. Let God's people help affirm that. You just serve wherever you can. Care for God's people. Love them. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. In time, if the Holy Spirit has such a role in mind for you, God's people will recognize it. You be humble and patient and trusting. The elders will spot it. They want to find other men to teach others also. And you'll know it as well. Lastly, the care of a faithful elder. Now, there are many things that we could look at and list as to what an elder does as far as Paul's example given to us here. But I want to focus on just the one major duty that Paul commends at the end of his instructions to these men found in verse 32. He says, and now I commend you to God, and surprise, surprise, notice what he says, and to the word of his grace, which is able or powerful to build you up 
and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Elders must be men of one book. They must demonstrate by conviction and by their teaching that they believe that God's word is the true source of growth and health for the people of God. They must be men of the book. This conviction must run deep and continue to run, grow deeper still. Spiritual leaders in the church are to be deeply and personally committed to growing in their own study and dependence on the means that God provides to feed his sheep. We read that warning in Ezekiel. Why were they condemned? They failed to feed the sheep. Paul says here that the word of his grace is able, is powerful to build you up and to give you the inheritance. R.C. Sproul has written, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program or methodology or techniques in anything and everything but that power which God has placed in his word. He alone, God alone, has the power to change lives for eternity. And that power is focused for us in the scriptures. Men, do you have that conviction in your life? Church family, is that your understanding of how you grow? How's that being demonstrated in your life? How are you growing in your commitment and understanding of the word? If you're not growing in your own investment in it, You're not ready to serve God as a spiritual leader. And that's okay. A position is not most important. Growth in godliness is God's plan for you. For each of us. Focus on developing this pattern in your life first. Church family, men and women and children. Do you see what Paul tells us we should be investing in together? Our lives are to be given to this work, to God's work, to God's passion, to building up his people through the word, to sharing the gospel with those who don't know it. If you're looking for a way to serve the church, start here with God's word. Find someone in the body that you can read the word with and get growing. God intends for each member of this church family to be growing toward this model of spiritual maturity. His his example is staggering. It's convicting, isn't it? His whole direction in life, his passion is shaped by what Christ has called him to. This is to be our passion. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Is this more and more shaping how you live, what you're investing in? Can I encourage you to think through these character traits and pray for your pastors that God would make these traits more and more clear in their lives? A second prayer request would be that you would pray for those that God would continue to to develop these godly character traits in their lives as they one day will serve among us. And thirdly, finally, pray that God would help us, each of us, pursue godliness together as a congregation. Now, one of the most important benefits of looking at Scripture and considering together what God calls spiritual leaders in his church to be is that it raises the expectations for all of us. 
It points us to spiritual maturity. I've seen this happening clearly among our church family over the last several months as we've looked at God's word, different passages on this subject. I can see your growth. I can see our growth. I see you desiring to know God and his word better. I see God raising up men who love the word and want to be in it with other members of the body. I see you seeking to love and serve one another more faithfully. So we're to keep going and keep growing and keep investing and let God continue in time with patience, with humility, grow us and reveal to us who else can help serve and lead our church family. So as we continue to love and serve one another, as we continue to grow in our love of his word, may it be so more and more that he might be glorified in our lives together as his church. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we are challenged as we see the model that Paul presents for us in your word. Lord, we do want to grow. We see growth happening, and yet we see much growth needed in our own hearts. Father, give us the wisdom and humility to pursue you in your word, to pursue one another, to understand what sacrificial service looks like as we continue to draw closer to Christ, as we follow godly models in your word like Paul. Lord, give us wisdom as we move forward. Help those who are serving now, help me, help our other pastors to be growing in these character traits, to be better and better models of what spiritual maturity looks like. Help those who would come among us and serve with the pastors to grow in their relationship with you and their sacrificial service for the sake of the body. Help us as a congregation to continue to know Christ, to grow up in him, to rejoice in what he's doing among us. Father, we need your help. We need wisdom and patience and humility. And we know you're able to provide it to us. Give us grace then as we grow. Help us to commit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard about our heart.